Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. All right, Ezra chapter 9 is where we're at. We won't even skip a beat. For verse 1, when these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Cellulites, they're the big people, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So it starts off with when these things were done. What things are we talking about? Um, they have been told by Cyrus to go back and repopulate Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Chapter 2 is a list of names. Chapter 3, they build an altar and they start morning and evening sacrifices. So they're doing the worship part as of chapter 3. Chapter 4, the Samaritans resist them. Chapter 5, God says, get back to work. Chapter 6, Darius responds. So, And then between chapter 6 and chapter 7, we've got a 60-year gap. But then in chapter 7 and 8, wave 2 comes back with Ezra at its head. Wave 2 is a bunch, again, 60 years is a long time by human reckoning. You think of what hap was happening in America 60 years ago. You got to go, what? 1960s and how much America has changed in 60 years. So from wave one to wave two is, is a significant amount of time from a human perspective. And things have changed. That initial fervor and vibrancy for building the house of God has faded. They've This second wave that comes in comes in like this renewed young generation of people on fire for the Lord and they come back to Jerusalem and that's what we're going to see in this chapter what Ezra finds is a group of people that aren't exactly on fire for the Lord anymore they've fallen away and it happens very quickly Ezra's path we learned in chapter 7 Ezra comes in and he's ready to go he is verse 710 he says for Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments this is what I call a person that's just ready to do God's word so he's excited he picks up on a journey he prepares for the work he fasts he prays and the spiritual conditions are set up and he's ready to come back and do the physical work of building this house of God. The group that comes back we saw in the last chapter is maybe 6,000 people max. So the second wave compared to all the Jews that are still in Babylon is still really small. It's just a remnant of people. And when these things were done, uh, the idea of making this huge trip, about a four-month trip across the Fertile Crescent, they arrive after about four months and then uh, Ezra records what he sees and he sends back a note to Artaxerxes saying, all that money you gave us for the project has been recorded successfully and faithfully. So we've also seen just a review again. Part of the theme, if you go to 5.8, they were doing work diligently. In chapter 7, verse 21, they were supposed to be doing it diligently. So chapter 7, verse 23, let it be diligently done. We've seen a theme in this book of they're not just working, they're working with diligence. And I think I failed to look that word up, but ospirna is the Hebrew word for it. It means to, we think of diligence as kind of this steely, 
furrowed brow focus. But the diligence in this word means eager or to do something thoroughly or with quickness or with haste that's inspired beyond the work. In other words, they're excited to do the work. And they're digging into it and they're doing it in a way that isn't quite normal. They're not just drudging along. Um, they're actually doing it. They had put in place David's worship teams, which is their version of turning on the radio while they work. So they're singing, they're worshiping the Lord, they're getting work done, um, and they're keeping the commandments of the Lord. And this is a godly decree. This is what they're supposed to be doing. Um, Deuteronomy 6.17, you shall work diligently to keep the commandments of your Lord, which means to work with some enthusiasm. Dig into it. It's not a burden to do God's work. It's the glory of what he's prepared for us. It's what he's commanded us. So this diligence is what gets seen by the Persians. It's what gets reported to Artaxerxes. And they are, it is part of their witness that when they're working and doing this work, they're doing it with this kind of supernatural joy. And they're digging into it. So when these things were done, we have this problem that shows up. They haven't separated themselves. And it's such a vague thing. What does it mean to not separate themselves? And the specifics are there. They list all these groups of people, including Egyptians, that are mixed in there. So then one question is, well, is the Bible against Egyptians? And is that the problem? And, and, and notice that that's not the problem at the core. And we know that because earlier in the book of Ezra, they've brought with them the Nethanim, a group of people that aren't Jews. So the problem isn't that they're not Jews. And the problem isn't just, so it's not necessarily an ethnic thing. Um, the problem is that these are people that are worshiping abominations. And they're bringing that into the families of the people. The problem, verse 1, is with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites. We know that they've had Gibeonites. Heck, when Moses left in Exodus, he had a mixed multitude that came with him out of Egypt. There were Egyptians with the Jews when they came out of Egypt. When they come out of Babylon, the same thing's true. They have this group of non-Jews called the Nethanim that have come with to be with them. So it's not a problem of marrying non-Jews. It's not a problem of people hanging out with non-Jews. The problem is these are people that are worshiping, idol-worshiping abominations of the Canaanites. And with that idol worship comes idol worship behavior. So they're bringing, in essence, they're marrying with people that don't respect the law of God and have no passion for the law of God what today we would call sinners. People that are just given over to sin and they haven't separated themselves. Another word for separate is consecration. They haven't set aside the parts of their life they're supposed to set aside. In fact, they've made covenants with sinners to do those practices and have that come in, not just into their communities, but into their homes. And this is what Ezra sees when he comes back. Instead of being on fire for Yahweh, they're kind of half on fire for different idols. And they're still clinging to these different things. They've compromised part of their life that's going to affect everything in the family, the city, the holidays they have, the culture they keep. As a type, they've chosen to follow God and obey God, and Ezra's there to help them do that. But part of helping them do that is saying you have to separate from sin. You have to disconnect from those things that are pulling you down. And if you're not going to do that, if you're just going to cling on to the junk, then all this work on the house of God is being done in vain. Literally, the abominations there is one of the words that gets used for the defilement of a building. The abomination of desolation actually is part of what's prophesied to be desecrating the temple of God or the house of God. It's important to note that the practice is the problem here, not necessarily the people. And frankly, this isn't new. The enemy is used 
physical, romantic attraction to bring God's people down over and over and over again. Numbers 25, in the Judges, you got Samson with Delilah. You got Solomon. Part of Solomon's problem is he intermarried with people that were worshiping other gods, and it brought Solomon down. Also, God commanded this to Israel. And again, this is part of what Ezra's seeing. Exodus 34, 12. Take heed to yourself. Do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you go. It'll be a snare for you. It'll draw you down spiritually. Numbers three gives the, or Numbers chapter 7 gives the reason for this. Verse 3. Neither should you make marriages with them. Your daughter should not be given to their son, nor, the, nor your son be given to their daughter, for they will turn your son away from following me, that they would serve other gods. If you're going to m- marry with someone of another religion, there will be part of your family's time and resources that are committed to that other religion. And in this sense, the, God's people are mixing. And that mixing, that intermarriage, is a way to undermine God's plan for the Israelites. They have a specific purpose in history. And Israel's given this purpose. As a type of the Christian life or the church life, clearly this is an image of, are we going to continue to do covenants with sin? And are you going to call yourself a Christian and continue to have sin in your life over and over and over again? Or, I think where this chapter's headed, is are you going to do due diligence to take care of that and clean that out? So if you're going to do God's work or be part of what God's got planned for his people and you want to cling to a part of your life that's clearly sinful, there's problems with that. God sees problems with that. So we get not only a type of this, but we just get an example of how Ezra deals with it, which I think is really encouraging. Uh, And when I think all of us at some level are struggling with something in our life, thankfully God usually points out like one or two things at a time. We probably have hundreds of things to work on, but God usually convicts you on a one or two. Well, how are you going to handle that? Notice at the end of verse 2, the leaders were the worst. And we see this in cultures that start to fail. The leaders don't have any law in their life. They do whatever they please. In fact, sometimes what you see is when there isn't an honor or a responsibility or a godliness, leaders, leaders are the first to fall away into sin because they think they're above the law to start with. And they do whatever they please. And this is a trespass. It's cutting into God's territory. So we see the result of Ezra's arrival. We know he's been teaching the word. And then after the teaching of the word comes conviction. This is a tough thing. People that want to live their own lives the way they want to do it, conviction's a hard thing to deal with. Because if you think you're the master of your life and God's word says something that's different, now you've got a conundrum. Well, God says I shouldn't do that, but I think I should be able to do that. And how, what the result of that decision really has everything to do with how God's going to bless or not bless your life. And they are related. God says those who follow him, he'll give them more. And those who don't follow him, he'll often give them trials or things to get them away from that sin, to separate them from the sin. Verse 3, so when I heard this thing, Ezra, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of my hair on my head and my beard and sat down astonished. This is for a guy who had hair. So he makes this four-month trip to join God's people, and when he gets to God's people, what he finds is a bunch of sinners. You ever felt that way? You walk into a church and like, oh, I just can't wait to be with God's people, and then you discover they're people, and they're sinners, and they're not perfect. They don't do everything right. It's discouraging. And when Ezra comes back and he doesn't see people that are excited about living under God's rule, then he... I think unlike the leaders that were there in verse 2, he actually does the opposite. He actually takes responsibility for it. This is interesting. Ezra's not at fault. 
Why is he tearing his clothes and rending his robes and plucking out his beard hair? Like, why is he showing all these signs of grief? So there, it's, it's simple in some sense is that he's already seen this kind of behavior from, from the folks before. And it's where we read in the chapter. He sees the Israelites returning to their vomit. This is what got them sent to Babylon. This is the problem that got them sent to Babylon. They just kept clinging to these idolatrous practices. It's a fool that returns to their foolishness. It's the tragedy, according to Proverbs. And he's astonished. The word there is to be desolate, appalled, or even stunned. How can God's people even think of a life of sin? And that astonishment, the word gets used again um, in verse 4. It reflects the astonishment that Moses had, Exodus 32, when he comes down from the mountain and he sees them kind of burning to a golden calf. And he's just like, how? How can one accept Jesus Christ in their life and continue to go do the stuff that destroys them? How can you get a glimpse of God's grace and mercy and go right back to the sin in your life? Why wouldn't you want to separate yourself from the filth? But humans act really differently. Sometimes we call on the name of God and we're grateful for that little touch of grace and then like a dog, we go right to our vomit and start licking it up again. And I know that's disgusting, but it's a biblical disgust. And Ezra sees this and he's just disgusted with it. It reflects when Jesus is riding up into Jerusalem and he starts to cry. These are God's people and they should recognize their Messiah, but they don't. It's heartbreaking. It reminds me of every time somebody I grew up with is still living a life that's making them miserable, even though they know me. If they know me, shouldn't they want to follow my God more? When you have a family member that's not walking with the Lord, even though they know the gospel, it's an astonishment. How can that even happen? It reflects, I think, how a healthy church reacts to a fallen saint in their midst. How is that even possible? How can you get a taste of the love of God when you come to a healthy church and then go off and do your own thing and just destroy your life? How much blindness is there? God's done so much. He offers so much. He provides so much. And humans just disregard it like it's nothing. And God's people see that. Ezra's just on fire for Christ and he comes in and he's like, I don't get it. I remember going to a Christian high school in ninth grade. I was so excited. I got to hang out with Christians. We're going to pray all day. We're going to sing hallelujah between classes. It's going to be awesome. And then I got there, and all they were into was secular stuff. All of them. Okay, there were one or two. Like, Steph was there. But there were a lot of people, and I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, you guys can actually worship God, and nobody's going to give you a hard time, and you choose not to. I don't get it. And so there's this expectation of God's people that falls short and and they're not doing due diligence. They're not being diligent to the spiritual work that God's got before them. They've accepted the grace of God, but none of the work of God. And there's no blessing in that. Then everyone, verse four, then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice, just dumbfounded. Everyone who trembled at the words. What's interesting about Ezra as a leader, he doesn't lead by yelling at people. He leads by kind of yelling at himself. I'm responsible for this. What what can I do before God? How can I intercede for these people? And what happens in verse 4 is he finds he's not alone. There's a remnant of people that are in it with him. They also see the tragedy that's going on here. To tremble at God's words isn't to be scared of God. It's to be scared of God's promises. 
God's promised that he won't tolerate this for long. And last time they went off to Babylon, what's he going to do this time? Maybe there won't be another Israel that rises up. So those who are really serious about their faith actually know how powerful God is. They know that everything they do is in the face of a powerful God. And there's a remnant of people that actually respect that God will act and will intervene in human affairs. So it reads in verse 4 like an impromptu gathering. That Ezra's just sitting there all day and people come and sit with him. And they just start this kind of natural prayer fest. And it, the idea that the transgression of those who have been carried away captive and just this division of attention between God's work and the, and the work of idols. Verse 5, at the evening sacrifice, I arose, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, Oh my God, I'm too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. This is just total confession. I love the posture. For, for notably, he sat there all day, and apparently you know, what's unique at the evening sacrifice is he starts to pray. You know, that astonishment was just a whole day. I'm guessing he's working through the flesh. Like he's mad. He goes through angry. He goes through sadness. He goes through all those kind of stages of grief at some level. But what comes out in verse 6 is just a prayer. Oh my God, I'm too ashamed and humiliated to lift my foot. Why is he ashamed? He hasn't done anything wrong. But this is what a leader does. A leader's just like, it's not just that person over there that's the problem. It's me. I'm supposed to intervene for those people. Ezra just... Like we've never seen in the scriptures, Ezra just, it is his problem. And as a leader, like, I love Ezra. What a shepherd. If a shepherd's flock has a bunch of sickness running through it, whose fault is it? And for Ezra's perspective, it's his fault. He's not being a good shepherd. And he's only been there a day. But he instantly takes on that attitude, that this heart. And he's, he says, I'm too ashamed and humiliated. That's the result of sinful living. So you're not comfortable with God anymore. And again, he's just stepping in as an interceder and he's taking full responsibility at some level for other people's sin. And the Bible never says you can't come in and do that and, and just step in and say, I'm going to stand alongside these people. In fact, Jesus does that to the fullest and, and takes the consequences of our sin. Ezra's just willing to. Look at the posture. He's fallen on his knees. Not the first time we've seen that in the Bible. Then he spreads out his hands. Not the first time we've seen that in the Bible. But this isn't the spreading out of hands like hallelujah raising hands. This is the spreading out of hands that's like when a cop says freeze and your hands just go up. This is a surrender. And the way we know that is because the next line, he can't lift his face. So that knees are on the ground, the arms are in the air, the face can't even look up to God, just bowing his head before the Lord. Interesting posture that he's put himself in. You put those three things together and what you have is a humble person that's appealing to God. The sin has, the iniquities have risen higher than our heads. I think a reference to the flood. Last time the sin was this bad, God, you flooded the world. And our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Just this idea. Notice that he shifts from I, and then at the end of verse 6, he, he goes to our. It goes from an individual prayer to a corporate prayer. And again, this is how leaders start to step in. And he's, he's actually got people praying with him at this point. 
So he's not above the people. He's one of the people. He's here to guide, but he's also here to take responsibility. Some people blame everybody else and everything in their life for all of their problems. Godly people don't do that. And in Ezra, we have a great example. It, some people say everybody else is the problem, but the godly people actually take blame unto themselves that maybe isn't even theirs. I'll take that extra load. And this is where I think Jesus got, got into it with the Pharisees. He's like, you walk around and all you do is put burdens on people. But Ezra, as a leader, takes burdens off of people. So instead of being the burden, they become the solution. And the godly move from I'm the problem to we're the problem to how can I fix it? Spiritual diligence. This is good leadership. It's a witness too. It's how Ezra shows people how to work on their life and, and models it for them. Because they're about to build a temple, a house to God. And the idea here is you can try to build a house to God, but unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor in it build it in vain, Psalm 127. Lest the Lord guards the city, the watchman's being awake in vain. You guys are building this beautiful temple, but at the end of the day, if it's not built on a spiritual foundation, it's a worthless building. It's just a waste of time. So Ezra sees this, and he turns around. What we've seen is he fasted on the road. There is prayer. The prayer is for purity, and there's a purpose to what he's doing, which is to build the house of God. And what a great model. Verse 7, since the days of our fathers to this day, we've been very guilty. He's not just taking on his own generation's guilt. He's recognizing the guilt of humanity over history. Humanity's always been a mess. And for our iniquities, and he includes himself in that. Our kings, there are no kings at this time. He's actually bringing our as the entire history of God's people. Our priests have been delivered into the hands of kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. All of the history of humanity has been God giving humanity a chance and humanity screwing it up again and again and again. He throws in the word, the word very guilty is in there. It's kind of uncommon in the Hebrew to have that kind of emphatic. But it's there in the Hebrew. It's not just guilty, it's super guilty. Very guilty. And it says, as to this day, it's a default, it's the norm. Why does it seem like Israel keeps failing? Because they do. Over and over and over again, judges, kings, prophets, doesn't matter how, what arrangement God makes for them and gives them the best possible scenario, they continue to fail. So here we are at the beginning of the second temple era with a leader that's, Ezra's probably your best case scenario for a high priest. He actually, he's not a hypocrite. He's not in it for himself. He's actually in it to take the burden of the people onto his own guilt. He puts the mantle on, right? Aaron put on a physical clothing mantle. Ezra puts on a spiritual mantle. And he takes this weight on his own shoulders and he does it before all the people. In verse 7, that idea of since the days of our fathers, Ezra sees himself in context of a larger world history. I think sometimes we forget that in the church. We are part of a 6,000-year human history. And we are responsible to this day for our behavior and our actions before God. Verse 8, And now for a little while, and I love these verses, And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in bondage. Have you noticed we never see conviction and judgment without God giving a way of escape? 
There's always a glimmer of hope with God. And Ezra also recognizes that. He doesn't just recognize their sin and God's perfectly just ability and duty to judge that sin. He also recognizes God's allowing, has shown a little bit of grace. What's the little bit of grace? After Babylon, they get a little bit of a chance to build a second temple. And maybe that second temple is where the Messiah is going to arrive. So they get this opportunity. God gracefully gives them a chance or a window in history where they have the ability to do something for the Lord. Because in Babylon, they were shut down. I mean, they were just trying to survive. Nebuchadnezzar is like, ooh, worship my idol. And if they didn't, they got in trouble and thrown in furnaces. Right? So they're just happy. Man, they have this little chance. They live in a generation where they can actually meet, worship. They've been doing the morning and evening sacrifices at the altar. It's awesome. God gives them one more chance, one more little sliver of grace, and Ezra sees it for what it is, to leave us a remnant to escape. It can't be understated how few people are here in Jerusalem trying to build a building. I mean, we think of five, 6,000 people as a lot. That's not a lot compared to, there's millions of people on the planet at this time. It's a very small group of people. Massive world-dominating empire under Solomon, a few thousand people under Ezra. The number has shrunk considerably. Sands, the numbers shall be like the sands in the seashore. Yeah, under maybe Solomon. Not under Ezra. You can count these people, and they do. And we will next chapter too. They leave us a remnant of escape, massive effort to whittle down the kingdom over time. Uh, first it was you know, Israel, then it was split into two kingdoms, then it was down to two tribes, then there was no kingdom, now it's just a remnant. And Ezra recognizes what God's done there. And I, this is one of my favorite phrases, a peg. We, we really don't see that in the Bible very much. It's a very unique word. A peg in his holy place. This is like saying, hey, thanks for giving me a corner of the room to sit in. Like, there's a whole place out there, but a peg, instead of shelves with screws in the drywall, they would have big plaster walls, and the only way to hang something on that wall was to build the peg in the wall as you started. And then if you had two pegs, you could put a board across it, and it would make a shelf. But they would have pegs all over on the inside, and in the kitchen, they would have a whole wall of pegs. The idea of a peg is it's literally a place to hang your hat. And he's just saying, a little while of grace with a remnant of people on a peg in his holy place. We get just this small opportunity to be part of God's work. And, and honestly, this place of rest, a place to hang your hat, a hook on the wall, and you think of the idea of Ezra just being appreciating any ability to be any part of what God's doing. One day in God's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Thanks for the peg, Lord. Thank you for just this one thing I can do. To be a street washer in heaven means you're walking on gold. And just that idea of to have one day, Lord, without shame, just one day with the guilt washed away. I don't have to be striving, hungering, thirsting, and wanting. I can just have a peg for a moment in my life. And to appreciate that one spot to be with the Lord, that one peg, that God might enlighten our eyes. The problem isn't God, it's our ability to see what he's doing. And, and we, have a, we want a feast for our eyes. And, and often that, that idea of blindness is one in which God translates the spiritual condition of humanity. Matthew 6, 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body's full of darkness. And if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you compromise with sin, 
you're blind. You can't see. And that blindness becomes a condition. Our natural eye often sees, you know, sees, goes to the dark things much easier. We often look at the things of the world because they're easier to see. But God asks us not to use our eyes to make our decisions, but to walk by faith. It's not profitable necessarily. That idea, also the measure of revival. A peg on the wall, a remnant of people, a measure of revival. The idea of the measure there is one of the smallest units of when you go cooking. It would be like a pinch of salt. Just a measure of a revived life. It's interesting that this is really the only request you see in this entire chapter. Lord, just help me to come to life a little bit. And there's a gratefulness in doing that. The godly also fall into this lie that, that God's work is, has to be spectacular and big. There has to be a light show and sparklies in the air. But God's work is often much more subdued and, much, and can often come in the still small voice. Just a measure of revival, Lord. Help my heart be filled with a measure, a portion, a glimpse of God, and let me be satisfied with that. I don't need more than that. Ezra doesn't need to be in, in Solomon's era of glory. What he asks for is a peg to hang his hat on. Very different expectations of the... And quite frankly, Israel here is closer than they've ever been to what God's asked of them. And I think this is kind of the beautiful part about Ezra and Nehemiah. We just see a people of God that looks a lot like the church people. In the next verses, he doesn't pray for a bigger revival, but he prays for, he doesn't pray for, for a wider revival, but he prays for more depth in that revival. And, and this is what I kind of want to, this is why it's taken me one night to do one chapter, Paul. This is important stuff for us as believers. This is the prayer of a godly person in the face of a compromised population. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Ezra is not in doubt about what the work is that needs to get done. Thanks God for your glimmer of grace. I know what I need to do. But he does acknowledge that they were slaves and God saved us. God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The house of God. I thought that was interesting. We've been talking often about a temple to the God of heaven. But here he uses the, 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 the phrase house and the image of the peg, which goes inside a residential house. The house of God is a different kind of word. It's not necessarily a building, but the same word is used for a dwelling or shelter that contains a household or a family. Remember in this culture, in this part of the history, a household included not just biological members of the family, but bond servants. Anyone who decided to join that family was part of that family. It was a voluntary covenant of people that lived in the affairs of a household. So it's interesting that Ezra refers to this as the house of our God or the household of our God, not just the temple or the building of our God. And it's interesting that Ezra sees that difference and he uses those words. Again, this connects in 1 Timothy, we're told what the house of God is. We don't have to make this up. The Bible translates itself. 1 Timothy 3.15, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. What's the house of God? In our era, in our generation, it's the church. And the church has nothing to do with the building in our generation whatsoever. God was weaning them off of the building addiction. 
So in this sense, Ezra is using the correct language for us to pray a similar prayer. And God inspires, I think, this kind of language in the Old Testament. Also note that this is in the sight of the kings of Persia. It's interesting that everything they do, Ezra sees it as a testimony. The, the ungodly world is seeing what we do and how we do it. And that's part of what they're watching. What does diligence look like? Four things. They're right there in verse 9. To revive, to repair, to rebuild, and to make a wall or to guard what you've built. Revival. That's probably one of the most common words in the church today. We all know what revival is. It is to bring life to something that didn't have a lot of life. To revive someone. Or turn God's hearts back to God's word, God's way, God's beliefs. As individuals, revival is individual, but it's also corporate. In this sense, I think Ezra's using it in a corporate sense. Revive us. You put life back into something. When the faith is dry and it's dead, sometimes, periodically, throughout Ezra's age and the church age, we need to think about the church. Is it dead or is it alive? And if it's dead, the first step is there has to be life brought to it. We even have whole churches called New Life. Same idea. The enemy loves when a church is satisfied with a dead church. And I think the enemy will sustain that church for another five generations. Because there's nothing better than a church that has no life in it for the enemy. In that sense, revival without tending to the life of the house makes for a household of God that isn't very appealing to anybody. But a household that has revival is good. Revival without tending the house, I think, is something that can become a tragedy too. I think the enemy loves this. Get the church all excited about a revival, but don't do anything to build the house around it. So just have like a youth retreat, thousands of people walk up and say a nice prayer, and then they go back to their lives on Monday, and everything stays the same. There's no change. There's no house for them to go to, because when they go to the churches in their area, they're all dead churches. And so you get revival, people with a heart that wants to go serve God, but you don't have any framework for which to do that. And I think the enemy loves when, when verse 9 gets edited down to revive us. And that's the end of the sentence. But that's not what Ezra prays for. He says to revive us and then to do other things. Um, I just want to read from 2 Peter verse two, or chapter 2, verse 20. Same idea, Peter, I think, says it really well. When people escape from the wickedness of this world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they're worse off than they were before. It would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and reject the command they were given to live a holy life, which is a command. There's nothing worse than somebody says, I feel revived, I want to give my life to the Lord, but I'm going to keep doing these filthy things. And they continue to have sin in their life destroying them. And Peter says it's better if they never followed Jesus in the first place. Who says that? Do Christians, do we say that? No, like in fact there's like this almost a passion to say, we just got to get them to say the magic prayer and then everything will be better. But it's not just a magic prayer in Ezra's request from God. It's revival, magic prayer, but then there's this re restoring, renewing, rebuilding that goes on. There's a journey. And Paul calls it a command that you're commanded to live a holy life. What could be worse than to say, I love you, Jesus, but I'm going to do all the things that you hate? That's not loving Jesus. That, that would be a really bad relationship. I don't think a marriage would last very long if you just did everything your spouse hated 
over and over and over again. Oh, I'm really sorry I did it, but I'm going to do it tomorrow too. That's not being sorry. That's not repentance. That's not changing anything. And it's horrible. The spiritual reason for our diligence is not just to revive ourselves every so often, but to do the full measure of the work that God's called for. And the full measure of work, what does God want to see? God wants to see not just revival, but let's go on to repair. He wants us to repair the house of God. God's house being God's family, God's household, but also the church building. Um, you could take this literally and be like, hey, when the church is starting to peel paint and look nasty and gross, but that's actually a put off. Like it needs to get fixed. And that's Ezra's state. There's actually a building that needs to get fixed up and repaired. But I also think there's a spiritual application. On an individual and church level, one of the things we're commanded to do is devotions. They were doing, you know, since chapter three, they're doing the morning and evening sacrifices, which I think is morning and evening giving God his due, which in our world is devotions. So what did, what's the devotional life look like of the church? Now think about this. Someone gets renewed unto God, they say a prayer of salvation, and they come into our church. Are they going to run into people that are faithful in their devotions? And again, this is super convicting. Like, what does that look like? Is the church actually doing what God's asked them to do? Do we give God his due every day? And it's not a huge thing that God asks for. How about fixing other things that need to be fixed? Repairing the house of God, updating, renovating. This is thoughtful work. To repair, we have to actually remember what used to be there and what used to look like when it was new. And if you go all the way back to two, Acts 2.42, you guys know I love this verse, and they can, this is what it looked like when the church was brand new, when it was shiny, had a new coat of paint, had fancy carpet, all the smoke machines worked. This is what it looked like. And they continued steadfastly or diligently in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Is the church still doing those things? And I, I honestly, if pastors across the country just stopped and, and returned to the apostles' doctrine, the word of God, and just taught what it said, what would the church in America look like across the board? If we get diligent about it, we repair the practice of it. So we ch when the world might not be doing it, we just say, well, we will. We're going to repair that thing that used to be there. Uh, worship, breaking of bread and in prayers. Worship, you know, I think sometimes the church can, the worship can just become an emotional ploy, a set of songs. We like these songs, we don't like these songs. But worship, if we look at the book of Leviticus, was about surrender and sacrifice of much more than of our vocal cords. Worship was to give God his time and his honor. So we repair the heart of worship, surrender, sacrifice, adoration. Those things have to be in place or we're just singing songs. It needs repair. Breaking of bread. That doesn't mean communion, yes, it means to have the communion of, um, that Jesus taught us to have, but if breaking of bread is just eating a cracker once a month, something needs repair. Breaking of bread together means to eat together. And so we repair the hospitality of God's house. And when somebody's revived and they come into a repaired house, they see those things that have been fallen into disrepair. They see those things getting fixed all the time. And again, God never asks for perfect people, but he does ask for imperfect people to rebuild and restore and renew and repair the things that he's shown us. So rebuilding, that's the next word. Taking the things that used to be there but have been utterly destroyed. What aspects of the church today should be there, but they've utterly been destroyed in most churches? Well, those need to be rebuilt. You can't just fix up something that's, you know, the youth ministry needs some attention. 
What if you have no youth ministry? What needs to be, and, and this is where we have blueprints. Again, God never asks us to reinvent the church. He's never asked us to come up with the next new idea. What he asks us to do is rebuild what he's taught us to do. The word, worship, prayer, fellowship, reach, teach, men, send. However you want to put that on a bumper sticker, it's really simple. If prayer's neglected and if it's not being done as a church, then as awkward as it is, we're going to be like, we're going to pray together. And it's awkward when you're first starting doing the things of the Spirit. But then you start to do it for a while and you're like, man, we love this. We're going to pray with diligence. We're not going to let things go unprayed for. If fellowship is, you know, saying goodbye to the parking lot attendant, um, then maybe we need to rebuild what fellowship looks like in the church. Maybe if fellowship's only happening on a Sunday, maybe we need to think about other days of the week where we meet, get together, do escape rooms, hang out, make a puzzle together. So if other things in other places, that's not even part of what they do, well, we're going to do those things. We know what's been built in the past, and some of it needs repairing, some of it needs to be rebuilt. And go back to the blueprints. Then the fourth thing on the list, give us a wall. That's an interesting idea. Without a wall, anybody walks into the house of God and does anything they want to it. Without a wall, there's no boundaries. And at, at that point, the sheep are at risk. There's no place to rest if the sheep are constantly on guard against wolves. So when they brought sheep in from the fields, they'd put them into a pen, a holding pen, and the shepherd would sit in the gate and guard the door. But the idea is that there would be a wall around the rest of it that would keep the wolves out. So when it comes to the house of God, the things of God, if we're going to take the time to bring life into it, to repair it, and to rebuild it, well then, darn it, we're also going to put a wall around it. And the wall isn't to keep people out, it's to keep the enemy out. And, what you do, and it's also to keep the people of God safe and secure while they're in that space. It makes an interesting take on this. Remember in Deuteronomy 22, there's this weird, obscure little law about building a house. When you build a new house, you must build a railing around the edge of its flat roof. So that way you will not be considered guilty of murder if somebody falls off your house. Yeah, you know, that's a, a very practical law. Don't if if you make safety protocols when you build something. But spiritually speaking, we see that again here. There's a principle here. Give us a wall. Help us to actually guard the things that you've made so that they can maintain repaired. We don't have to rebuild them all the time. So Persia's approval of this project is not the wall that Ezra's talking about here. He's either talking about a very physical wall around the house of God. But spiritually speaking, again, he's upset about their spiritual condition when he prays these things. It's not the wall that made it so they were intermarrying with pagan worshipers, right? Or the lack thereof. But it was something in their hearts. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Proverbs 4.23. If the church doesn't guard its heart, its life, its hope, many will come for them. You can see I just went crazy this week. I was really enjoying this chapter. When the heart gets angry and bitter and jealous and it covets and it's selfish, we're supposed to fight that. That's the wall we build when we secure our heart. I will set my mind on the things of God. I will decide to think of those things which are good and true and noble, holy and righteous. Revive us. Repair the house of our God. Rebuild its ruins Give us a wall. And honestly, I just, that it really hit me because I find that I'm praying for revival all the time, but am I praying for repair, rebuilding, and walls at the same time? Ezra did. 
Maybe that should change how I pray a little bit. I'm not just praying for revival. Yes, I want revival. Please don't think I'm knocking revival down a notch. But I am elevating repair, rebuild, and put a wall around it. Those things should be as important to us. What good does a refreshed heart do if there's no place for it to be alive? And there's no place for it to have a rest on a Sunday. What good is revival if there's no abiding in Christ for people to see and witness in our lives and in our hearts? If we're not separating ourselves from sin, there's no place to go on this planet. And God will get the rocks to cry out. But if we don't do it, where do people go if they want to find the Lord? If we're still dabbling with sin and toying with it and messing with it and letting it wreak havoc on our lives, we're not a witness to anyone. And it's an embarrassment. And Ezra is so ashamed of this state, he can't even lift his head before God. And he rightly goes before God and throws himself at his feet. What good is revival if God's blueprints aren't even used and there's no house to go to? How many people have we talked to that have gone to four, five, six different churches and they just can't find fellowship or a prayer ministry? The worship's good, but they don't really teach the word there. They teach the word there, but the worship's horrible. You know, and you just see these things all over the place. We're not here for a quick fix. If I can twist somebody's arm to say a prayer, somebody else can twist their arm to go live a life of sin. They're twistable. They're weak people. So I'm not here to twist arms. I'm here to have people count the cost, consider what it means to follow Christ, and then choose to follow him. And I think most of you are in the same boat. Like, that's what we're about. It's about a walk. It's about a lifestyle. It's not just about a moment in time. Ezra then turns back to purity in verse 10. The rest of the chapter is dealing with this conviction that they have about intermingling with sin. They, this is diligence. And now, O oh God, our God, what shall we say after this? For we've forsaken your commandments. He sat there all day, and he can't think of what to say. Like, it's just so far beyond anything. There's no blame being passed around here, no excuses, just confession by God's standard. There's no excuse for it which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of their lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to the other with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take for your sons your, their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever." Clean out the house. So he quotes the word of God in doing this. This is revival. This is a desire to respond to God's call and give their hearts to God's. Again, and I'll re-emphasize this because people take this out of context so much. The problem is the idol worship. The indiscretion, the abominations that fill it from one end to the other. If those people repent from those abominations, they can just join Israel in the worship of God. But the prophets here, notice that it says plural prophets. There's been multiple warnings and many generations that have said again and again and again, stop yoking with sinners. It's no yoke. Hmm? Hmm. <laughs> These marriages look convenient to younger men and women. They even look appealing, right? Samson was drawn to Delilah by physical appearances, 
but they have consequences. In those days, Judges 17.6, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the way of the fool, Proverbs 12.15. Do what you think is right. Good luck with that. See where that ends you. When we're in the word, it does convict us. In this chapter, again, reading those four things, that convicts me. It might say that we're not doing something the right way. The question is, how do we deal with that? And where's the hope? If we've forgotten how to pray and fast, maybe there's new things we need to build in our life. If we've forgotten how to take evil deeds and throw them as far away as we can and run from them, maybe we need to repair that. That desire to be holy is a great effort. It's part of what God puts in our hearts. And I think it's interesting that God does, never expects us to reach the goal, but he expects us to run towards it. Like he doesn't expect perfect people. He doesn't call perfect people. He calls broken messed up, mistaken people, but he actually asks us to pursue holiness, a goal we'll never attain on our own, but we're supposed to run after it. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, verse 13, again, no mincing of words for Ezra. It's their evil deeds. And for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, that's mercy, and have given us such deliverance as this, that's grace, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these obligations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Again, apply this any way you want. How many times will God have to forgive your returning to your sin? What do you expect of God? How many times through this cycle do we need to go through? And Ezra's just admitting it. Like, of course you're angry with us. And, how, and the fact that you haven't punished us to the degree we deserve to be is the window of grace he talked about at the beginning of the chapter. As hard as Babylon was, Ezra recognizes they had it coming. They don't deserve a country. As hard as it is to build a temple, this work that's before them, they don't even have the right to build God's house. And Ezra just admits it. Oh, we're here with unclean hands. They're slaves that are choosing to be slaves again. What does that look like? Our evil deeds and our great guilt. Ezra is informed, he's accurate, and there's a sincerity of the reality of sin and how horrible it is and how destructive it is. That prayer sums it all up. We've sinned, we've fallen short. Ezra just puts that out before God. And I, I just, I have to ask, are you, in, are you here today to hear God's word to make yourself feel better? Or sometimes, sometimes we come before God's word and there is a great guilt that falls upon us. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually the beginning of healing. And God invites us to understand and recognize truthfully our evil deeds and our great guilt and to see it in the light of what God has done. And when we come to that point, now we can start to move forward. The iniquities that we deserve, it's all our fault. And again, a lot of people look at circumstances, look at all, the, there's tons of what my friend calls lame excuses, but at the, aim, at the same time, Ezra just owns it. We deserve whatever punishment we have coming. God has no requirement to give mercy or to give grace. He's only obligated under the law of the Torah to give consequences. The only thing God has promised or bound himself to is the law. So any mercy you get outside of that is not God breaking a covenant, it's him keeping a covenant. Yet God gives the remnant a chance. He gives them a peg on the wall. And he doesn't have to do that. 
I just, this is such a beautiful idea that Ezra has. You've given me a peg and I don't deserve even the peg on the wall. You've given us a remnant. We don't even deserve that. You've given us your word and we don't even deserve that. Yet here it is, mercy, not full punishment. Grace abounding with gifts and care and blessings for people that are yet working these things out. And I think it's important here. He says, you are righteous. Verse 15, like a full understanding of who we are, but also a full understanding of who God is. And you put those things together and it gives us hope. Amazing hope. Verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, Yahweh Elohim of Israel, you are righteous. For we're left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Wait, that's the end of the prayer, Ezra? He doesn't even ask for anything. He just throws himself before God. This is a righteous man that's stepping in with an intercessory prayer for the people of God, taking their sins upon himself. It's a great mirror of what Christ does. But this idea, he doesn't even make a request of God. This is the first time we've seen this in a prayer in the Old Testament. Everybody else that prays in the Old Testament has a request. They have something they ask of God. And in this sense, he's just recognizing the window that God's already given them and showing appreciation for it. Thank you that I still have breath in my lungs, a peg to put a hat on, and the opportunity to build a house for my God. Thank you, Lord. Interesting conclusion. He states all the facts with humility, reverence, admission, and he does it with this small little remnant of people that tremble before the Lord. And that's all God has ever wanted. I still think it's amazing that Jesus himself only discipled 12 people. He taught lots of people, but there's 12 people that he had as in an intimate relationship with. And he just brought them into his circle. If God himself mentors 12 people, God doesn't need masses. He wants relationships intimate, remnant relationships. This righteousness. He's not calling for justice in this prayer. That's probably a good idea on Ezra's part. He is calling on God's rightness. God, be right in what you're doing. His judgment stands. There's no appeal for exception. He doesn't ask for special favor. I think he could. Honestly, if you read the Torah, Israel does have special position before God. Ezra never uses his special position to go to God with sin. He actually does full confession and full acceptance. And then that, that phrase, we are before you, again, we see the word panim. Everything we do is in front of God. Everything we do is in the face of God. We think sometimes in the quiet places by ourselves, when we're alone, that it's, pri- it's not private. God sees all of it, every piece of our life. We're either living in sin or we're living in obedience. Either way, God sees it. We do, we do it in the face of God either way. Ezra appeals to the mercy of a king that was wronged. He is right and he is powerful. And God and Ezra deals with that kind of God. Ezra models how to do God's work. I just this is how to do God's work. This is how to lay it out before God and we just have this wonderful example. Individually we seek the law of the Lord to do it and to teach it. That's what Ezra did in the last couple chapters. Then he prays, he fasts, he confesses, he knows what the blueprint is and the question he has for himself is am I doing what God has called us to do? And then he lists out what that is to revive God's people, to repair God's way, to rebuild God's building, the house of God and to put a wall around it with diligence. 
And so we do those things. It's interesting that God calls us to love one another. What is that if it's not repairing the house of God? Calls us to treat each other as ourselves, to put ourselves into a servant position underneath everybody around us. Boy, if everybody's doing that in the house of God, we become a supernatural anomaly on this planet. What kind of people just live for each other? Who does that? And that's what God's called us to do. This is the heart of God's people represented in the Old Testament of a confessing, true, and humble heart. And the phrase is even then, as it is this day. This, this hasn't changed. This was the same thing in Moses' time and Abraham's time as it is in our time. We always do everything in the face of God. So we say, give us this day our daily bread. This is the day the Lord has made. His mercies are new every morning because every day we wake up, we can come to God with this kind of heart. And we just live that way. God, help me get through today and be an honor to you, not a disgrace. So I can come before you and not be ashamed, but to be coming before you in appreciation. So church, be that people. If we're a remnant, then let us be a diligent one and let us do it God's way. Amen? Amen. Amen. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you even when that word is directing us to think about things. And Lord, we have fallen short. We come before you and we have not done everything the way you've asked us to do it. And we seek for your wisdom in doing that. Lord, help us to take heed to ourselves individually, but also take heed to ourselves as a group of people studying your word together. Lord, help us to be a people of God that not only takes care of each other, but when we leave here, we're ready to show that love to other people. Lord, there's a wall, and we don't always stay inside the wall. <laughs> and But we need a place that we can be at rest, that we can be at ease. We need a place without jealousy, animosity, greed, hatred. We need a place, Lord, to be renewed unto you, and we do it all in your face. <laughs> do it all up in your grill. Lord, help us to be honorable. Help us to be a sweet aroma to you. So, Lord, we gather in your name, we study your word in your name, and, and help us to just sink in. Help this word to be in our head all week. Lord, I pray everyone in this room gets a chance to share with somebody what they, what they see in Ezra chapter 9. Um, great conversations, great discussions around the church and what it is. It sets us up for next week, Lord, and we just pray as we talk about what we're doing and how we're doing it, that we can be an honor to you in all ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.